said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time? Hey, everybody out there in podcast land. That was Carsey Blanton playing us in with her amazing song, Smoke Alarm. Check out the lyrics to that song. Pretty, pretty mind-blowing. I love it. Uh, if you're into her sound and you want to know more about her, check the archives of this podcast because I chatted with her for about an hour and a half, I think, in Brooklyn a few months ago. And you can hear that. You can hear her talking about writing that song, uh, what she was thinking, what inspired it. And I think she, yeah, she plays the song in the podcast as well. It gives us a little live performance there, which is really great. Uh, check out suredesigntshirts.com, our one and only sponsor at this point, a wonderful sponsor. Uh, in fact, I just got a shipment and I'm, <laughs> it's funny, the microphone I'm speaking into is resting on a pile of uh, Sex at Dawn t-shirts that were printed up by Sure Design. They're fucking beautiful, man. They, you can see them um, on our website, chrisryanphd.com. I believe they're posted there. If not, you can certainly see them if you follow my Twitter stream, uh, Chris Ryan PhD, or if you're, uh, if you like the Facebook page, sex at dawn, I've posted uh, photos of the shirts there in both places. And I think also on Instagram, uh, at Chris Ryan PhD, uh, I've got a, a new social media consultant, <laughs> which explains why I've got all these fucking accounts everywhere all of a sudden. Um, anyway, you can also see the shirts and uh, some of the other designs at uh, levygreenacres.com. That's L-E-V-I greenacres.com. He designed the, the shirt. Uh, I believe it's based on a photograph he took of his girlfriend reading our book naked because we have this ongoing thing where people send us photos of themselves reading or at least pretending to read sex at dawn naked in various places. Um, you can see the entire collection of those photographs. If you go to sex and then you'll see a tab for, uh, I think it's like not safe for work reader photos or something like that. Yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. People, somebody started, somebody sent us a photo of themselves reading the book naked and I posted it on Facebook and then other people started doing it. And then somebody said, when are you and Casilda going to take one? And I said, I, I wrote back and said, well, when we get a, a hundred of these, Cassie and I'll do one. So at this point, I'm not sure where we are. We're probably, we're, we're over 50. We're probably between 50 and 60 at this point. So. If for some unexplained reason you want to see Casilda and me, uh, you know, naked except for a copy of Sex at Dawn, you know, get on the stick and send us some photos. When we hit 100, we'll do it. Um, okay. Last thing to mention, uh, feralaudio.com. You can, you can hear our podcast there and you can check out some of the other great 
podcast that they've got going on. Duncan Trussell Family Hour is the one I always plug. Uh, honestly, I don't have much time to listen to podcasts. Uh, maybe I shouldn't say that, but it's true. I, I don't commute and or, you know, have a job where I can listen to a podcast while I'm doing what I do. So um, Duncan Trussell, I, I try not to miss him, though. He's he's always funny and one of the most courageous and, and just like no bullshit guys you'll ever meet. So uh, definitely check him out if, if you're interested in, in good conversation and laughs and learning some stuff. And um, Daniele Bolelli also has a great podcast. I've enjoyed listening to some of his stuff. Now, today's episode is uh, with my buddy Voodoo. What can I say about Voodoo? Voodoo is a guy who I've known, and uh, I've known Voodoo maybe 20 years now. Time flies when you're getting old. Uh, but uh, Voodoo is incredibly intelligent. Um, Voodoo, if you meet him, he's like uh, uh, Pendulet. He's like a big kind of loud not loud because he's 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 aggressive but loud just because he's he's just a big dude with a lot of energy and he's into 15 different things at a time and every time i see him he's got new passions i remember one time he was like really into those sort of model planes that you build and fly very remote control and then i saw him a few months later and now he's completely into you know painting or he's composing things on the piano or he's you know he's just got he's constantly um expanding range of interests he's a voracious intelligence uh he's a world famous tattoo artist based in barcelona he's got his own shop there um although i think he's in the process of moving to victoria british columbia back to where he was born anyway he's just a really interesting guy and i'm uh, i'm proud to have him as a friend and i hope you enjoy getting to know him a little bit uh, as much as I have over the years. So hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. All right. Welcome to another episode of uh, Tangentially Speaking with Dr. Christopher Ryan. <laughs> I'm here with a guy who uh, laughs every time anyone calls me doctor anything. <laughs> Don't you? Indeed. You're, you're indeed. If you, uh, and if you knew him the way I knew him, you would too. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, anyway, we are sitting in a Voodoo Tattoo Shop. It's called Voodoo Tattoo, right? It is the, called Voodoo the Tattoo. establishment. We're in the back room in beautiful Barcelona. Uh, before I first forget i just want to thank carsey blanton for that beautiful theme music you heard coming in i always forget because i don't hear it but then i listen to the podcast and i think damn i forgot to thank her again that song is called smoke alarm and you can find that and uh, lots of her other music at her website carseyblanton.com and also you'll see in our archives uh, an entire podcast interview with her where she performs and everything how do you spell carsey c-a-r-s-i-e wow okay. blanton Okay. Dot com, yeah, yeah. Anyway, I'll tell you a story about her later. could just imagine her parents lying there in the dark thinking that one up, can't you? You know what? Her father <laughs> wrote a book called Radical Honesty. No. Yeah, he was profiled on This American Life, and I saw the profile years ago. Is this 15-minute thing. You can see it online. 
Uh, his name is Brad Blanton. He ran for Congress as a man who would not lie. Wow. So it's a great, wow. it was a great thing. And then I met her completely through different channels. She just sent me an email out of the blue and we started talking about music. And uh, she said, well, here's, you know, I've wrote this song. It sounds like it might sort of encapsulate what you're doing, you know, your, your theme, yeah. which is just, you know, what the fuck you're going to die someday. What are you wasting your time? And she sent me the song, the theme song, which is fantastic. And I posted it on our Facebook page and said, uh, yeah, I'm thinking I'm going to use this as the theme song for the podcast. And somebody wrote and said, oh, I love her stuff. And did you know her father wrote Radical Honesty? Can you start it for a second? Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, so, uh, so anyway, somebody I, I put this thing online and I said, I think I'm going to use her music. And someone was like, yeah, love her music and really love her dad's book. Radical honesty. I take it he didn't get into Congress. Is that no? He but didn't. he won 25% of the vote in Virginia with no party affiliation. Wow. Yeah. 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 It's it's a great it's a great thing. I mean, you see this. It was this American Life did a video thing two years, and so there he is. You could see him, and it's so funny. Mm. She starts off the the interviewer starts off and says, "Okay, so can I ask you anything?" <laughs> and he says, "Yeah, shoot." And she says, have you ever had an extramarital affair? And he says, I've been married four times. I've had syphilis three times, gonorrhea twice, the herpes since I was 20. I've literally slept with thousands of women. Wow. <laughs> Just like <that. laughs> so anyway, that's Carsey's dad. Cool. But that's neither here nor there. This is Voodoo. I'm here speaking with Voodoo, the longest introduction in the history of my fucking podcast. Who rarely tells the truth. <laughs> Voodoo, who rarely tells the truth. Of course. Of yeah. course. Uh, I've known Voodoo for how long? Uh, 20 years. About now. 20 goddamn years. Mm. Yeah. Don't even think about that in dog years. Yeah. That's a lot I, of dead dogs right I, there. I haven't aged as well as Dr. Ryan. No. <laughs> I don't think. <laughs> I think you look the same. Or uh, maybe my eyes are just going. Yeah. yeah Voodoo and I met uh, about 20 years ago at a dinner party thrown by friends of ours. Used to have, what was it, Friday night? Thursday night? What was it? Saturday nights, wasn't it? I don't remember. It was every Saturday yeah. night. Yeah. They, I remember they had a dinner party every the same night every week. Yeah. Um, and it was a great place to meet people. Yeah. And I remember I remember the first night I met you too. We were sitting on a sofa in the apartment together, right one beside the other. We didn't know each other. And you looked at me and you leaned over and you said, So, what's your IQ? <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> you were, I, we, I was I was blabbing away about all the things that interest me, and you, you were interested to know: is this guy stupid and full of shit, or is this guy smart? And so you turned around and you said, "I don't know you, but what's your IQ?" <laughs> yeah, interesting. Okay, well, there's a little insight into things. So the reason I wanted to interview Voodoo for this is. Um, if I made a list of people I've met in life who are the most interesting people, Voodoo's on the list. The smartest people, Voodoo's on the list. And the most sincere people, Voodoo's on that list. Top five in all three lists. And I, I think you're probably the only person who would appear in all three of them. Oh, thank you. Uh, yeah. And uh, so Voodoo is someone who's always got something to say, unless you turn on a microphone, apparently. Oh, I, I, I'm waiting for the, for the <laughs> jump, gap. Jump I, in. I'm man. waiting for the gap where <laughs> I'm supposed no to gaps. speak. Find <laughs> the gap. Find the gap. Find the gap. Find the gap. Maybe we can move this down here. I don't know if this is better. 
Okay. Let's see if the sound quality changes. Okay. Um, all right. So, Voodoo, what the hell, man? You've been in Barcelona. You're, give, give us your quick bio. You're Canadian-British. Well, I'm born in London, England, to British parents. Right. We emigrated when I was five to Canada, to, um, to British Columbia. When I was 15 and I finished high school in Canada, I went back to England and did my sixth, what they call sixth form, which is basically the last year of school uh, in England at Harrow, which is my dad's old school. Then I came back and went to university in One Canada. One of them fancy public schools. One of them fancy did, public did schools. Did you get spanked and buggered? No, I got oh. spanked way worse at the Canadian private school than really? I And I never got touched in uh, in uh, the English one. The English it was the best. The English school was the best experience I've ever had. Really? Uh, I didn't expect that. My parents said it would be. And to tell you the truth, I'm now 48, and only about a year and a half ago have I stopped having my recurring dream, which was I, for the last 20 years I've been having a recurring dream, which is I go back to that school. I have such fond memories of it that I go back but I'm aware that I'm older right I'm aware of my real age <laughs> and I'm trying to pass and not as a kid but I'm trying to pass that they'll let me stay and uh, it's just been a recurring dream I mean two three times a week for the last 20 years no shit. and the last time I had it a few months ago I remember having a conversation with one of the teachers in the dream and him saying, dude, you just are way too old now. This has got to stop. <laughs> and I haven't had the dream since. You can send us money, though. <laughs> it was great. Really? That's yeah, interesting. Yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've heard of recurring nightmares concerning going back to school. You know, I, I often have these dreams where somehow somebody figured out that I needed to finish one more credit of gym or something, yep. you know, and yeah. you're back there. Well, I used to have a recurring nightmare. I mean, I, I, I had and still have a true phobia of snakes, an irrational, uh, uncontrollable fear. I mean, so bad that if I would see a snake on television, I have to lift my feet off the ground for, for 15, 20 minutes. So it, really? was, it was very strong, huh. which was also accompanied by night terrors or, or nightmares um, throughout my childhood and well into my early adult years. Um, they were always the same. I would always wake up yelling and screaming, and I have to strip the bed to make sure there were no snakes in the bed, always. Um, I was having these while I was married as well. My Not wife was sure. quite used to it, that I'd, I'd have to strip the bed to see that there were no you snakes. You ever lived in the tropics? No. no, but when I was a child, I stepped on a poisonous snake with bare feet, uh, and all the adults around me went apeshit. Right. They went absolutely apeshit, and I wonder if that might not have been what, what, right. what, what stayed in there. But anyway, I kept having these dreams, and as I did, I did a psychology as my university degree at Queen's University in Canada and one thing about uh, undergrad psych degrees is they make you terribly introspective and, and over analytical <laughs> yeah. not only about yourself but about others yeah, yeah. and so I started and, and, and learning about Jungian dream analysis and, um, and, and Freud as well um, I started to sort of think about these dreams and analyze them and strangely enough somehow in one dream I was being chased this time by a big snake it was big the big ones didn't scare me as much as the little ones because they move more slowly but this big snake was chasing me and chasing me and chasing me and I was running and running and all of a sudden in the middle of the dream I stopped I turned around I looked at it and I called it by its name and its name was Anne which is my mother's name oh that was about 10 years ago I've never had another snake nightmare Wow. Now, Freud would have a lot to say about that, yeah. but and I'm not exaggerating, I'm not making it up, I swear to God, I still have a snake phobia, but I don't have nightmares about them anymore. And it's really strange, I never told that to my mom, but you know, but wow. that, but uh, Freud, both Freud and Jung would have some very definite, uh, you know, analysis of, of snakes and the snake related to the mother and the Oedipus complex or whatever. So that was interesting. But. <laughs> so, well, I'll be the judge. So that, that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> All right. So you 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 uh, born in England, moved to Canada, go back to England to finish high school at yep. this fancy, uh, fancy wait, what's it called? Harrods? Harrow. Harrow. Hmm. Harrow on the Eaton. hill. Harrow on the hill. Oh, Harrow on the hill. It's yeah. got to be on something, <laughs> course, doesn't it? It's not, it's not pretentious enough of to just course. say Harrow. No, no, no. Harrow on the hill. Absolutely. So another interesting quality about Voodoo is I'll be sitting to, next to him in a bar, as I've done many, many times over the years. He, he's talking to me with his Canadian accent, and there's a Brit on the other side, or the bartender happens to be Irish or British or something, and Voodoo will immediately switch into his British accent when talking to the, the British person. Yeah. And then turn back to me and continue. Well, and, it's like and, someone who grows up with two languages. You know, you, they be, both become totally innate. Yeah. Neither one is false nor forced. Right. Especially if they're truly both mother tongues. Right, right. And they don't find it very easy to switch back and forth. Um, the Catalans, for example, here in Barcelona, we're in Catalonia, which yeah. is a province of Spain. Yeah. And in Catalonia, they speak Catalan and Spanish, as right. a, as a, in theory, as a secondary language. Yeah. What the Catalans say is if they begin talking, most of them speak both languages. So basically, the first meeting when someone meets, whatever language they speak to each other in, that seems to set it somehow in their psyche, yeah. that they are from that point on incapable of talking to that person in the other language. Right. Or if they start in Catalan, they can never speak to that person in Spanish. Yeah. It just doesn't feel right. right. Yeah. And people say to me, you know, put on your British accent or put on your Canadian accent. I guess if I really tried, I could fake it, but it is faked. Whereas when I'm speaking to an Englishman, uh, that's the way I speak. Or I speak to my parents. I speak yeah. with a British accent. Do you feel... I mean, it's not a different language. Well, you speak Spanish very well. Yeah. But you were an adult when you started to learn Spanish, yeah. right? Yeah. So that, that's, I, I'm thinking about my ex-girlfriend, Peggy, who you've yeah. met. Um, I remember uh, noticing that when she, you know, she grew up speaking French, Catalan, and Spanish all as a child. And then she started learning English at 11 or 12 when her family moved to Miami hmm. for a while. Um, but I, I remember, you know, she spoke Catalan with her father, French with her mother, Spanish with her friends. And, and I remember thinking, it's not just that she's speaking a different language. It's that she's a different person in it's those true. different languages. It's true. You, you know? take on, it, for some reason, there's a, it, it does something. For example, I know that when I speak Spanish, I'm able to say things to people that I would never be able to say them to them in English. Um, and things it, that would be considered rude? I don't. I can't think of a specific example, although I've come across many, many in the last few years. But and I mean, you would say "coño tío" in Spanish. No, but which it means. It, but it's different. Um, pussy, and you would never say that in English. Well, I don't. I don't mean it literally. I mean yeah. express concepts in a way that I would never express oh, uh, right. in that way right. in English. Right. And remember, I mean, I have mm, Canadian culture is one culture, and British culture is another. Right. I'm familiar with both, and they both speak English, and yet I wouldn't express these concepts in either culture. Right. Even though the British have got a terribly sarcastic sense of humor, right, a very right. dry and, and cutting sense of humor. Um, so definitely a, a persona, it, it changes your persona somehow when you're in that language. It's almost as though you're a different person. Well, what happened, what, you know, I was casting around for PhD dissertation topics at the time, and I remember observing this in her behavior. So I started looking into multiple personality disorder, hmm. and I found that uh, there's, there's some research showing that People with multiple personality disorder have different physiological states corresponding to different personalities. Mm -hmm. So, like, for example, someone could have a, a, a particular a blood pressure, sort of signature blood, you know, resting blood pressure, mm -hmm. resting heart rate, mm -hmm. and in a different personality have a different 
resting heart rate, different resting blood pressure, yeah. even to the point of different interocular pressure, so that one personality needs glasses to read and another doesn't. I can believe it. I can so, believe it. So my idea was, mm. why not do a study on people who've grown up speaking these different languages? Yeah. Because then if I can if I can show that they've got these different physiological states associated with speaking different languages, then what you're really showing is that it is a different person. The brain is reconfigured in different languages in a way mm. that really makes you're a different person. I mean, you're the same body, obviously, but that body is behaving in a different way. You know, mm. might react to stress differently, mm. might, you know, fall asleep more easily, might be more or less orgasmic. Yeah. Think about that. You know, women making, I remember Peggy would freak out if I ever talked to her in Spanish when we were in bed. Yeah, of course. It was like, ah, <laughs> get, get out. <laughs> yeah, she did that when I was spoke Spanish to her in bed as well. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Peggy, that's a joke. That was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, all right. So you go back to this fancy smancy school. You did not get buggered or spanked. Nope. Which I had a great is disappointing. Time. I had a great I mean, time. really. Yeah. If you're going to go to a British public school, you want to get buggered. Well, I would. I walk around with my pants down on my knees the whole day, and nothing happened. Nothing I just happened. Tr I tried and tried Jeez, and tried. Yeah. That's why. That's why you keep going back in your dream. Dude, I was I was lubed twenty four seven, and nothing happened. It was it was very very disappointing. All but lubed up and nowhere all to go. Right? <laughs> that's it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So then what happened? So you finished your fancy school. So now were you... I, how, how can my history be interesting? I just, well, well, it cannot be interesting. We're getting can we, to the can point, we talk about something more interesting than well, what I've done in my pathetic but life? People want to know who the hell you are, well, right? Well, and you, oh, some friend fuck of Chris's. They don't need to know. <laughs> fuck them. I mean, and they're really not interested either. I mean, I'm just, They've already turned it off. There's oh, nobody listening. Exactly, exactly. I mean, I, I know that when I find a, you know, an interesting academic who's work I find interesting or whose opinions I find interesting uh -huh. or I could give a shit about his personal life I want to hear about his uh, the, the thing which interests me about him which is the academia or which is which are his ideas right but the and, thing with, that interests me about you is you hmm. right so hmm. I mean that's the whole fucking thing you're a guy named voodoo yeah so the audience is going to be wondering how does a guy get to name Vo be named voodoo Ah, uh, well, I mean, there's a slight, somewhat interesting story behind that, I guess. I mean, when I was younger, I was younger, meaning from age 15 to about 25. Um, I got into a lot of trouble. <laughs> see, that's where I was going. No, you see, I'm a, I'm a bit of a searcher. I, 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 I like finding something uh -huh. and then pursuing it to see where it leads. Right. I, I'm not content with what life just puts before me. I have to, if there are things which either interest me or which thrill me or which I enjoy or which which are stimulating, I have to not get more, I have to know more. I have to see more. Right. Um, and I'm, so I'm, I'm, I'm an explorer like that. Um, and unfortunately, that's not a good attitude to have when you start doing heavy drugs. Right. Well, or it is. I mean, I, I pursued psychedelics and that was a very, very positive part of my, my, my childhood and it has made a very positive impact in my adult life, without a doubt. The other drugs, not so much, especially, especially cocaine, which gets you into a lot of trouble. So anyway, I made a lot of mistakes. I screwed up pretty bad and hit rock bottom finally and got some help and, uh, and stopped. Uh, but when you, if you've really hit rock bottom and you've been through the ringer, there's a lot of embarrassment involved. I mean, you've behaved in ways and done things and said things and been uh, given an appearance that you're not proud of. And shortly after stopping the drugs, uh, something happened which uh, made a group of people start calling me the voodoo man, the voodoo man, which then got shortened to voodoo. And to tell you the truth, I grabbed it and I hung on to it because at that moment I was starting 
a new life as a new person. Uh-huh, right. I was not that old person who had screwed up so bad. Um, I really felt as though I'm, I have to metamorphize into a new person, a new right. personality, and control some of these these destructive impulses. And having a new name just seemed to fit perfectly, and it just coincided. So I grabbed hold, kept it, and used it. Um, and to this day, if someone calls me by my old name, uh, I don't. It just don't feel like it's me. And it reminds me of that young kid who, who screwed up so bad. Right. So it was very useful in that, in that respect. Unfortunately, it was a very cool nickname when I was like 30, 35, and still, and still could pull off the the coolness and everything else. Now you got a big, a slightly large, very lazy 50 year old man <laughs> with the name Voodoo. It just doesn't match. <laughs> start calling him Mister Mister Voodoo, Mr. Voodoo. Yeah. <laughs> or Uncle Voodoo. I've actually Uncle Voodoo. I enjoy. I, whenever yeah. I go to work in other countries and other tattoo shops, I always say I'm Uncle Voodoo. Yeah. And they just let all oh, everyone latches on to Uncle. Do Voodoo. you have nieces and nephews? No. Uh, well, I do. I do have nieces and nephews, uh, but but they were not my nieces and nephews. But, uh, but still, yeah. Uncle Voodoo was. Uncle so anyway, uh, you know, ser- uh, searching and searching, exploring too far can can lead you. Well, it can lead you to the edge. Lead you to the edge. Which is kind of the point. Which is kind of the point. And we, we, we actively searched for the edge and we found it. And we were lucky enough, we being one or two other guys in university who we did this exploration with, who, you know, I think we found the edge. And we were all lucky just to pull back just in time. Just in time. But just ridiculous stuff, you know. I mean, real, real pushing the limit. You know, how many grams of cocaine can a person sniff in, in one hour and still live? Yeah. Uh, shit like that. Yeah. Or, um, you know, doing crack hits at the bottom, through a rubber tube at the bottom of a jacuzzi um, to see if the, the heat and the bubbling would intensify the effect. Just bizarre, <laughs> strange stuff, you know, <laughs> that young guys do. Yeah. How many hits of acid can you take in a day? Yeah. I remember one, we used to travel with the Grateful Dead. We were all big Grateful Dead fans. So, of course, every time you go and see the Grateful Dead, you, you drop acid. Right. And um, if it's a series of concerts, three, four, five concerts in a row in one spot, I mean, you're there and you're tripping for three, four, five days in a row. And since your tolerance builds up, you know, with the last day of one of the last concerts I saw, we took 16 hits of acid each that day. But we'd been taking it for five days. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I found that when, when I tried to do that, it, it just stopped working. It does. I mean, yeah. you, you lose your tolerance very, or you build up a tolerance very quickly. Yeah. And also after you've been, I mean, in my, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm a lightweight. I've been tripping for a day or two. You know, I just want to go to bed. Oh, so do I. So do I now. I mean, I I don't even trip now. It's just too tiring. Yeah. Well, me too. (laughs) My body would take weeks to recover, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) So does that give you an idea of who Voodoo is? I guess so. I guess so, yeah. So now you're like a world famous... uh, No, that's an exaggeration. Now I do tattoos. Yeah. And uh, do them to the best of my ability and get better every day. And you've been doing it a long time, so you're pretty fucking good from what I hear. Well, but then I open magazines and books and I see guys who are a thousand times better than me. And I realize where I've I've got to get to. If you ever get to the point where you go, oh, I'm so good, quit. What's the point? You're not... You can't get any better. Well, you still got to pay the rent. Yeah, but but are you going to... Does it leave any space to grow? I mean, one of the only things which keeps me coming back to my job with any modicum of, of, of energy is the idea of, to get better. Right. Correct mistakes, get better, do the next one even better. Um, and, and that constant growth is necessary to maintain my interest. So how'd you get into tattooing? You're obviously a, a skilled artist. I've seen your paintings and your drawings. You're a musician. You're a, you're a creative guy. Mm, I'm creative. So, and yeah. how did... I mean, was tattooing something that 
I mean, when did you get your own tattoos? Well, you, you got to let me let me just qualify what you yeah. said because I think it's a very it's an interesting point and one which I try to drill into all tattoo artists who I meet, who young tattoo artists who are just starting out and just learning. Um, I try to portray this concept, which is I'm actually not an artist in any way. Um, I'm a technician. Mm. What does that mean? It means that I believe I can uh, um, achieve a reasonable level of competency in almost anything by learning and working at it. Not through, quote, natural talent, God-given talent. Mm. Um, if you speak to many, many, many brilliant artists, they'll tell you that, that their, their artistic skill was, was learned and not they, were, they weren't able to draw as a child. They never did anything as a child, mm. but they went to art school and they learned how to draw, how to see, how to reproduce. They mm. learned the mechanics of the, of the medium. Um, and I firmly believe this. And so when I wanted to do oil painting, well, I got all the DVDs I could, all the books I could, started to look, read, investigate, find painters whose work I loved and then analyze it, get high res scans of them and analyze the brush strokes and when you dive into it that way and you really become analytical and you really set out to learn you do I mean surprisingly enough you do using this concept which, which is that if you're a good learner um, and I think I am a good learner I think when, when I'm motivated to learn I mean I really and I'm also a good researcher yeah. I can find information <laughs> I'm also a good talker so I find artists anytime I hear someone oil paints I say to them uh, let's talk oil painting and again and bleed them for information. Um, and I've done the same thing with tattooing. I mean, I'm not a naturally, a naturally gifted drawer or art artist. So if you realize that from the beginning, you can compensate for it by technique. Mm. You can learn the techniques to make your drawings look fabulous and, and so superb. You can learn ways to draw certain figures so that you can repeat them uh, ad infinitum. And you, you can learn how to make it look really good. And very often, attacking it from that angle, instead of saying, my natural talent will hold me over, no. It's, if you approach it from the angle of, I, I have to be technical, I have to, learn, I have to make it look good by, by using technique, you often get a better result than you do by using just raw natural talent because right. you you know you you're only, you can only paint as well as your raw natural talent will allow you to right. you can only tattoo as well as your own raw natural talent but if you're on a if you're on a quest where you're at, at, uh, gaining more information all the time new techniques practicing them and putting them into practice the, the, the progression is constant and non-stop right. um, yeah. and so talent isn't very reliable talent will well, you know, most people who think they have talent don't um, <laughs> is, is one thing I've seen yeah. um, you know painters I, I notorious walk into galleries and things like that or look at people's paintings and just think how do you not know your shit why are you even showing this to me now and they go oh it's my style no it's not your style it's crap it's crap it's awful now unfortunately you thinking that that's your style and that's okay which is a very American attitude you know whatever you do is fine oh everyone wins yeah you're not gonna get any better whereas if you look at every painting you do and think well it's crap I got to do it better. You will progress, and let the clients latch on to any point of your progression that they like and buy the painting. Mm. But not you. Just sit at a mediocre amateur level and think that that's really good. And the oh. problem is, oh, these days everyone says you're so good. Yeah. Wow, that's well, amazing. And if they're fucking buying it, I mean, you know, the, the, one of the most sold writers alive right now is Paulo Coelho. I don't know Paulo Coelho. He, he wrote The Alchemist. Mm -hmm. You know, sold more copies than any book except the Bible and mm -hmm. maybe 50, 50 Shades of Grey at this point, uh -huh. which is an interesting thing to think about. Uh -huh. uh, but uh, yeah, he's, he's exceedingly mediocre. Mm. And, and, and admits it? 
No, not to me. <laughs> <laughs> I think you might know. I I, I, I was at Paulo Coelho's 10th anniversary party by some strange coincidence. You yeah. might know this story. I don't know. I, I used to work for this porn company, and the woman who hired me, Ivana. Did you ever meet Ivana? I don't no. think so. Okay. Um, Wouldn't admit it if I did anyway. Yeah, probably better not to. But in any case, I ended up at this big party uh, where Paulo Coelho was supposed to be uh, celebrating the 10th anniversary of the, the publication of The Alchemist, right? And uh, she invited me just on the spur of the moment, just called me up. Hey, what are you doing? You should come to this party. Oh, it's great. Okay. So I go to this party here in Barcelona. And it is like the fanciest fucking party ever, man. It's they've rented this big, you know, party space, and they've got live music, and they've got uh, the Alchemist takes place in North Africa, so they've got like a, you know, a Sahara theme. So they've got uh, piles of sand around in this big space with fake palm trees and these fashion models dressed up like, you know, in in their North African gear, lounging around <laughs> in the sand and all this stuff. Open bar, you know, 200 people there. And um, so I'm sort of like, I don't know anybody there. And Ivana comes over and says, oh, hey, you, you're here. Oh, here, talk to um, Xenia is her name. Begins with an X. Xenia. Mm -hmm. And Xenia is like the hot woman I'd ever seen in my life. She looked like Cleopatra. She was just like, holy shit, Xenia. So it turns out Xenia was Serbian, uh -huh. as was Ivana, so I figured that was the connection. Uh -huh. I talked to Xenia for a while, and I keep, I'm starting to feel bad, like, you know, this super hot woman is just stuck with talking to me. So I said to her, look, you don't have to, you know, go go be with your friends or whatever. She said, oh, no, no, I'd, I'd rather be with you. And uh, so I'm starting to feel pretty good, you know. And um, she asked me what I think of Paulo Coelho, and I said, it's bullshit, you know. He, he wrote this book called The Alchemist, which is the oldest story ever told. Hmm. It's the guy goes out and see, in searching for something. He goes around, has all these experiences, and then he goes back to where he started and founds what he'd been searching for all along, yeah. right? The fucking Odyssey, and Joseph Campbell said, called it the hero with a thousand faces. Mm -hmm. It's the same story. Yep. Anyway, so we go in to, uh, to hear Paulo. Everybody goes into this big room, 200 people, and there's some actors read scenes from The Alchemist, and then Paulo Coelho comes up and he starts talking about his experience of having written the book, and the whole time he keeps staring at me. And I'm thinking, why is this guy staring at me? There are 200 people sitting here. He's staring at me the whole time he's talking. And then here's where ego comes in. I started thinking, well, maybe he's not so dumb after all. <laughs> <laughs> maybe he recognizes a fellow genius. A literary it's genius. Like, all right, I'll, give, I'll, I'll, I'll reassess my opinion of him since he seems to be obsessed with me. And so then we leave. And we go, uh, we go back out to the bar area, and I'm still hanging out with this gorgeous Xenia, and Ivana runs over and whispers in my ear, I hope you're not coming on to Xenia. And I said, well, what are you talking about? Yeah. Why not? Yeah, of course. We're already, you know, we're going tomorrow. I'm going to give her a ride around in my motorcycle. <gasps> That's Paulo's girlfriend. <laughs> but apparently well, Paulo he, 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 he can't be so mediocre in everything <laughs> well he's super rich yeah. but apparently like they had just met in Belgrade when he was doing some event there and he brought her to Barcelona she and was married to a Serbian gangster and so Paulo couldn't be seen with her because he was married 
And all these people uh, at the party Chris, knew his wife. So he's staring you so down he's staring while he's me. giving the talk. Because <laughs> I'm sitting next to his girlfriend. I had no idea what was going on. So anyway, why the hell are we talking about my Paulo Coelho story? Oh, I don't know. A mediocrity. A mediocrity. It was, so anyway, so okay. So, but in that sense, it was an appropriate story. <laughs> and in that sense only. <laughs> I'll probably be sued by, you know, I'll get calls from Paulo Coelho's lawyer. Well, everyone's allowed to have an opinion and, and uh, yeah, you know yeah. and we're all terrified of, of, of I think we're all terrified of, of broaching a negative opinion ever it's been drilled into this new generation and possibly the last one that you know if you think if I I paint I'm not great shakes at it I do what I can it's my hobby my paintings are not on ex not in an exhibition anywhere but there's nothing wrong with me looking at someone else's painting and thinking it's crap. Right. Now, if I turn to them and go, your painting's crap, then I'm being yeah. an asshole, obviously. But there's nothing wrong with you having your own opinion. Right. And, but it's been drilled into us, I think, that, that, that there is something wrong. It's, it's arrogant. Right. Um, everyone has value. Everyone's worth right. something. And it's right. bullshit. And what this <laughs> does is it just, it just fosters mediocrity in our, yeah. in our society. Yeah. Because people are told, no, no, the way you are is fine. And everyone loves you. Well, no, it's not. Get your shit together. Stop being an asshole. Lose that weight. You know, like, do, do something. Get a yeah. decent job. But no, no, no. No, it's fine. You can sit on the sofa and smoke dope for the rest of your life. That's fine. You can... It's not, man. Come on. These things are not. Doing shitty paintings is not. Doing bad writing is not. Doing a bad job is not. Not to me. Now, maybe to you it is, and that's fine, I respect your opinion. But there's nothing wrong with thinking that. And if more people thought it, maybe we would push ourselves to become a little less mediocre. Hmm. And, and, and actually have a, a little bit more um, exceptional work produced, both in literature, in art, in, what, in, in whatever. You think it's worth it if, if it causes a lot of stress? In other words, the tortured artist who creates great art, is that a net gain or a net oh, loss? Well, let, let's be realistic. Let's look back at the, the, some, of the, some of the great artists of, of, of old. And these people did not start in their own basement doing their own style of painting, and then people just liked it. That didn't work that way. When they mm. were 15 or 13, they went to apprentice for a great painter. They washed his brushes and prepared his canvases for 10 years while they watched him paint. Then they were allowed, then they were taught more and they started, started touching paint on canvas and they would be 10, 20, 15, 20, 25 years apprenticing under a great, great artist who would teach them everything he knew and more. Then they were qualified to see if they could right. do it. Right. Now, this concept of really learning your art, dedicating time, expense, um, and effort to learning your art and achieving a certain level of ability has disappeared. Now, I see it. People come in. I've, I've been tattooing for 22 years, and I'm still learning. So when someone comes in to, and wants me to teach them to tattoo, okay, I'll give you an abridged, a very abridged crash course, but the most abridged I can get it is down to a year. I mean, that's as, that's as tight as I can get it. Hmm. No, no, no. What they want is a two-week course, and then to open a shop and start tattooing people. Right. It's that attitude which just creates crap, not only in tattoos, but in everything. Right. Um, look at the music scene these days. You know, Remember when we were younger? Remember if Chris and I are both around 50? And, um, you know, maybe there were a hundred bands out there playing and they were really good listen to them now they were good musicians they sang well the compositions were very good now we've got two million artists all with records out any joe can just record his own disc and put his record out the record companies are just signing up everyone and anyone 
And the quality of music, in my opinion, sucks. I mean, it just fucking sucks. It's terrible. Now, I know the new generation likes the new music, but come on, let's talk about quality. I can like the new music. I can like music that's technically crap. And, but they haven't learned their art. Mm -hmm. I don't, there was a musician, musician recently who got up to receive a prize. And as his acceptance speech, he said, all I want to say is advice to, to upcoming musicians. Learn an instrument. <laughs> and this is on stage in front of a, a nationwide audience in America. And his advice to musicians was learn an instrument. Right. I heard an interview with Brian Eno the other day. I mean, Brian Eno is a, is a huge right. figure in the music industry. Started the concept of ambient music, etc. But he would always say he's a non-musician. And they'd say, but why? I mean, you are a musician. You've got 50 albums, you know, you started a genre of music. And he said, yeah, but I don't play instruments. I play a recording studio and right. I play it very well, right. but I'm not a musician. I don't actually play an instrument. Yeah. Now, since then, he has learned how to play some instruments, but he was honest. He didn't say, yes, I'm a great musician. He said, no, I'm a studio technician. It is an interesting thing that I was talking in a previous podcast with Neil Strauss, the, mm -hmm. the author, and one of the things we talked about was what kind of work would be interesting to do other than you know, writing, obviously, since we're both writing. And uh, we both came up with studio uh, technician, studio engineer, mm. um, because... And we were talking about uh, Daniel Lenoir, the, mm -hmm. the great French. Uh, he's, he's a musician, but he's also a, a producer. Mm -hmm. He produced the Joshua Tree U2, a couple other U2 albums, some other stuff. And just to be able to go into a room with you know creative geniuses like that mm. and say, okay, here's the sound we're going for. You know, mm. to, to say to Bono, no, 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 I think we need to do this yeah. and have the balls to stand up and say to, you know, guys in a band, here's how we can improve the sound. Yeah. I think that would be so cool. Amazing. You know? Amazing. To be that confident in your taste. Yeah. Cool. It would probably be fairly frustrating because some of them would probably not let you. Well, but that would be fine because I would think that the last thing they want... They, I'm, I, I know nothing about this, right? But my, my sense is that what they would want would be someone who comes in with very strong opinions. They don't want someone who comes in and says, hey, yeah, whatever you guys want to do. Well, but I, I, I see, I mean, I, I, not, in, not in, the same, in the same genre, but I see this in my work every single day. People say to me, what I want is someone who's an older person, who has a lot of experience tattooing, and who knows what they're doing, and who I look at all their work and I love all their work. That's what I'm looking for. And I go, okay, so you're looking for my experience and my ability, right? Yes. Right. And they come in and they go, this is what I want. Let's see what you can do with it. And I go, okay. And I draw out, always sticking very closely to what they've told me, just trying to inject some style, some beauty, some aesthetics into it. And they, I show them the, 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 the drawing and they go, oh, it's perfect. Absolutely perfect. And then they start. Okay, this flower here, we could put that down here. And this we're going to take out and we're going to use this color here. And can you put red in the eyes? And right in the middle of the nose of the person, could you put the letter J? Because John is my brother and I love him. Dude, if you've come here looking for my experience right. and you want to pay for my experience, why right. would you then, yeah. once you've received it and you have the option of having it, why would you then destroy it? Yeah. And I would think the same thing might happen in, that, in the, the, the example you gave, which is where yeah. he has the ability and the balls 
else to speak up and say this would sound better this way yeah, but yeah. and they want someone like that but we'll see if they take the opinion or not That's if they take true. the advice or not sure, sure. and it, it, we are always saying I want a really good doctor yeah. and we find one and we walk out going he's such an asshole because he yeah. didn't tell me what I wanted him to tell me yeah. Yeah. it's always a danger unless the person tells us what we want to hear our opinion of their of their ability will suffer and it usually does I mean if yeah. I if I go to see a doctor and I think there's definitely something wrong with the left side of my body and he says no your left side's fine and sends me out I look for another doctor right. Right. I don't trust his, his diagnosis because it doesn't correspond to what I think is wrong mm -hmm. and we do this consciously or subconsciously mostly subconsciously in almost everything we align ourselves we, 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 we get close to friends who hold similar belief systems to ourselves mm -hmm. we tend to associate with people who uh, think the same way and who are not going to threaten our belief system um, and I can't claim to be any different I'm afraid I mean uh, I try to challenge myself I try to listen when people who are saying the exact opposite of what I believe uh, are speaking but I just can't I zone out and yeah. it just I, I think it just threatens your belief system no but you are threatening your own belief system I'm comfortable doing it myself right I'm just not so comfortable when someone else does it because I need to have complete confidence in the ability of that person or their qualifications. Right. I mean, if I'm talking to the world's expert on a topic and he challenges what I believe, I'll take it. Right. But talking to any of my friends, colleagues, um, anyone I meet at a party, I don't know if this guy's a complete moron or if he's intelligent. I just don't know. That's and I'm not to going to allow. IQ. Yeah. Well. <laughs> <laughs> You know, anytime you're at a party, that's a great icebreaker. Yeah, yeah. Well, I remember when Peggy asked me my IQ in bed, but she asked me in Spanish, I kicked her out. Uh, <laughs> poor Peggy. Poor Peggy. Okay, so, um, so, so I, I think... snob. No, no, it's not... That. No, no, it's not snobbery. Think about it. You're going to allow a piece of information, new information, uh -huh. which drastically contrasts with what you believe sure. into, your, 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 into your belief system. It was an extraordinary claim require extraordinary proofs or something basically like what yeah. I'm saying yeah. if that that piece of information is is has the potential to upset my belief system to really shake it up mm -hmm. I want to make damn sure that if I'm gonna risk shaking up my whole core belief system that that piece of information that I'm allowing to come sure. in is correct right. and one of the only ways I can do that is by um, attaching a, a level of credibility to the person who's given it to me so and then and then going back and checking the sources. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, having said that, it's interesting because I would consider you one of the people most who's who's the least uh, invested in a particular belief system. I think you, you've got a very open-minded belief system, and you you believe and and are investigating some things that most people would consider uh, unbelievable. Well, I found that my belief system. Um, the part I share with all of you, with with my fellow uh, members of society, is is about eighty percent wrong, and that comes from a mixture of um, disinformation we're being lied to, um, we're, it comes from um, from incompetence, where people are telling us what they believe is the truth and they're just wrong. Um, it comes from us struggling, and this relates a lot to your book, Sex at Dawn. It comes from us struggling to try to be people who we're told we should be, mm. which when it doesn't actually correspond with what we are. Right. Or we're told we should think and behave in a certain way, which just doesn't correspond to what we think and behave. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm prepared to have a battle and you know to try to change the way I believe or the way I think or the way I behave if 
I accept that that's a good idea. But when it goes against your human nature, it's very, very difficult. And I think this, this, this conflict that we've created uh, with sexual tension, with sexual uh, repression, um, but also with, with, uh, with, with this whole mediocrity thing, that everyone's fine and we should love everyone mm -hmm. the same and you don't judge a book by its cover. Let's use that as a simple example. I mean, one of the basic concepts we learned in psychology was that um, judging people in an instant is the only way you can survive. If the human brain was not capable of making a snap judgment about uh, a situation, or in this case, a person in front of them, we would possibly not be able to survive as a species because we wouldn't be able to see danger coming. It's essential, it's part of our core, it's essential to us, and yet, we're always told from children up, you should never judge a book by its cover, judge a person because they've got this or that. Of course you should. You'll be wrong a lot of the time. That's what they should have told us. You're going to judge people. Just remember, most of those are going to be wrong. <laughs> Why not say that? It's yeah. normal that you judge them. Yeah. Just keep in mind that you're probably going to be wrong a lot. Right. Instead of saying, don't judge, which is an absolute impossibility because it's a, it's a basic part of our, of our, of our the, uh, brain's makeup. Yeah. Uh, it just doesn't make sense to me. And there's so much that doesn't make sense. Hey, while we take a little break here, don't forget to go to feralaudio.com. You can donate to the podcast just by clicking on the little donate button. You can also do this great thing where you go uh, through our affiliate button. You can purchase whatever you want to buy at amazon.com and a little bit of that money comes back and supports the podcast at no extra cost to you. Also, check out some of the other podcasts at feralaudio.com, particularly the Duncan Trussell Family Hour, one of my personal favorites. Uh, I'm a big fan of Duncan Trussell. You haven't listened to that one yet. I try to avoid things which end with family hour. In oh, general. no, it's, it's meant very ironically, believe me. Because, because you may interest me very little, but your family even less. Even less. You've met my parents, though. <laughs> my mother calls you Tattoo. Oh, how's Tattoo? Oh, he's fine, Mom. All right. So anyway, I think that's all I had to say. Oh, and go to iTunes. If you download the podcast at iTunes, rate it, comment. Apparently that's important on their logarithm. I don't even know what the hell a logarithm is. All right, so we're back with Voodoo. Where were we, we before we uh, we left? Well, I think you were whining about mediocrities. I was, I was, and it, it's this is still a concept that I'm battling with. Um, By the way, I, I sorry to interrupt you. Voodoo. I have seen Voodoo make several people cry at parties, <laughs> and Voodoo is also the only person who's ever taken me to a. Uh, a party at the headquarters of a motorcycle gang. <laughs> Do you remember that? Well, I've always, I always said one of the wonderful things about my upbringing. <laughs> my upbringing was that I'm as comfortable having a beer with the Hells Angels as I am having tea with the Queen. And it's actually fairly true. I come from both sides of the tracks. There you go. And I'm equally comfortable on both sides of the tracks. And they both have something to offer. Now, were you in the Hells Angels? No, God, point? no. God, no. No, 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 no. I just used them as an example. It's okay. the, one of the most well-known bike clubs. No, no. I, I always had, I had a Harley and I knew a lot lot of uh, bikers but I was always stayed uh, stayed on the outside the periphery of the oh, okay. of the bike biker thing um, because it's a game I don't want to play but uh, you, you can't help knowing people have got the same kind of bike as you right 
So well, and you you look like that kind of guy. I mean, you're yeah. You know, you cultivate a physical look. You know, you're uh, but something what I'm, I'm six very... four. You know, two something tattoos, scraggly beard, mean look in the scraggly. eye. Scraggly, scraggly. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> scraggly, a little scraggly, scraggly beard. It's a beautiful, lush beard. People, he's lying. He's lying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, All right. So you're so, never in a motorcycle gang. No, no. And I and I've never. I, and I've always been battling with this concept of what I consider to be mediocrity, starting with myself. Once again, I, this is not an arrogant, this is, it may sound arrogant, but I begin with myself. You come from a family of strivers. Yes. Right? Yes. And correct me if I'm wrong, because I don't think I, have I ever met, I don't think I've ever met either of your parents. No. My father, my father was a surgeon, right. Oxford educated surgeon. Right. And he, was quite, he is still alive and, and quite a remarkable man because one of the problems, one of the great problems that I'm beginning to find out, which has really destroyed my faith in doctors and medicine, is that medicine is constantly evolving. This we know. I mean, constantly and dramatically in ways that, you know, you know we've been saying up till now that you should never touch this food group or you should never touch alcohol or you should never touch this. Well, we've now found out that was completely wrong. Actually, you have to have one of these a day or two yeah, of these a day. Sure. I mean... We're not talking slight changes. We're talking massive changes. Vitamin D has Vitam been a huge Vitamin one. D, massive. And the they, hygiene. They now think it's uh, vitamin D is, is um, the amount of vitamin D that people have is has an influence in your potential for stroke, I think. Everything. Um, everything. I've seen it related to everything from well, cancer to you know, immu yeah. basic immunological function. Well, look, look at alcohol. Even 15 years ago, the Canadian government was telling Canadians that if you have one beer a day, you're an alcoholic, which demonstrates a complete lack of understanding of, of what alcohol is. Uh, alcoholism actually is. Now, then they started to find that there is a link. They don't know why, but there's a link between people who drink a certain amount of alcohol daily, an amount which is not enough to damage their liver or damage their body or hurt their lifestyle, but they drink a whiskey, two whiskeys, or half a bottle of wine, or two glasses of wine, or whatever, a day for their whole life. They live longer. In general, they right. live longer. Right. They don't know why. Now, that's nothing new in medicine. I mean, 30% of all medication on the market works, but they don't know why it works. So, yeah. the, so the fact that something works and they don't know why is nothing new in medicine. Now, if you go to the uh, AMA, American Medical Association website, and look under alcohol, it is not only allowed, it is recommended that you drink between two and three units of alcohol a day. Men. No. And women no, fewer than that. they don't discern. They, really? No, they don't discriminate. I don't think so. Well, last mm. time I read it, I didn't see any discrimination. It may mm. have changed since then. It's mm. constantly changing. Right. But the last time I looked, which was a couple of years ago, it was recommended. The only debate is whether it's two or three units a day. Now, right. a unit is a beer, a glass of wine, or a mixed drink. Right. So this, it's got to be red wine. Yes, there are elements in red wine which are positive, but it seems to be alcohol. Look at the Queen Mother. I mean, she was pissed for the last 50 years of her life um, in England, and, and she drank gin like it was was going out of style. She right. was always laid into the gin. She lived to, what, 102? And you speak to these people, very often when they interview people who get well over 100, very often you find that the alcohol is part of their diet. Yeah. Either wine or they've always had their whiskey or their brandy at night. So I'm not saying that, that this may not be the definitive, the definitive uh, advice, right. but it's changing constantly. Well, and one thing that my father did was he stayed up to date. Yeah. The problem is if you go and see a, med a doctor who's 60, for example, or 55, now he learned his medicine 35 years ago. A lot of medicine has changed since sure. then. Now, if he is a doctor, if he's a lazy doctor, and he's basically just not kept up to date, and it's 
so much information to keep up to date, then you're t he's treating you with medical advice formed 35 years ago, and he's going to be wrong sometimes. Whereas if he's a doctor who stayed right up to date, which requires an incredible amount of ongoing research and work and learning, you're a better doctor. Unfortunately, most doctors don't stay quite as up to date as they should. And what the hell does this have to do with the Battle of Waterloo? <laughs> well, it's a different topic completely, but I'll, I'll go to it if you want. I was talking about my father. He was an amazing man that he constantly got uh, new degrees, new qualifications to right. stay up to date. And what did he do? He, he was he, a surgeon. A, a, one particular procedure? Because I know he flew general all around the world. He was a general surgeon, uh, uh, meaning thorax, abdominal surgery, uh, okay. basically. General surgeon is basically abdominal right. surgery, thorax. Right. Uh, mother was a doctor as well. And they always said to me, it doesn't matter what you do, as long as you do it well. So was there pressure on you, despite them having said that? I mean, you come from a family no. that I know no. your uncle's also a pretty prominent guy in England, yep. an investment banker or something. And the, I mean, I remember his yacht was down here. I never saw the yacht. I was out of town then, but apparently when the yacht arrived, that it was, was quite was, a scene. That was great. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. He left it here for us to use. Isn't that great to yeah. have an uncle with a yacht, a yeah. spare yacht? Yeah. No, yeah. There's, there's definitely, I've had some very privileged um, elements in my life. So what? Ha so did you just completely rebel against that? That, yeah, that period as, as 15 all, to 20 or whatever? As all kids do. As yeah. all teenagers do. Yeah. I rebelled against everything. I mean, I went as far the other way as I could. Right. Which is, which I crossed over the track to use the earlier right. analogy, but right. I crossed over the tracks and I went completely the other direction, way into drugs, did following you, the did dead. Did you get busted? Did you get oh, yeah. Oh, got really? busted a couple times as yeah. well. And yeah. it just stupid, stupid shit, kids being kids. Right. But it's this concept of striving. They didn't, they didn't push me in any direction, but they did say, uh, strive to do something well. And unless you realize you've got a natural talent for something, which I didn't, I don't think there's anything I've got a super natural talent for, um, you have to compensate. You, in order to achieve a certain level of, of, of ability or success in something, there's only one way to get it, and that's hard work. Right. And that's what they instilled in me. And Do you I, know about this 10,000-hour rule? Yes. Have you heard about that? Yes. Uh, yeah, that yeah, seems that's what you need. It's the number of hours of practice you need to get proficient at something. Yeah, yeah. That's a very good idea. And I would bet you that most people practicing very important jobs have not put in the 10,000 hours. I mean, just haven't done it. And we're all lazy. I'm not mm. criticizing others. I include myself in this. Mm. If someone tomorrow said, hey, you want to be managing director of this company? I would probably be terrified because I'd know I wasn't qualified. But I'll give it a go. Yeah. I mean, just like they would. Yeah. Um, so I include myself amongst all the things that I'm criticizing. But I'm trying. I'm trying to break out. And as soon as you try to break out, you suddenly realize that the world is not the way you see it. It just isn't. As soon as you start to find out the way our brains work, you realize, okay, what I'm seeing is not really there. What, the way I'm interpreting things is purely subjective and has no basis in, in a universal reality. Um, so how the hell can I trust my perceptions? Well, you try to find evidence to corroborate your perceptions. But our brain, without our knowledge at a subconscious level, will refuse to to look at or take in information which goes against what we want to believe mm. and will only cherry pick I mean, uh, things which will support it. Right. Look at religious fundamentalists when they, talk, they quote the Bible at you all the time. Yeah. But um, you know, lately I've been learning some very interesting quotes from the Bible such as, you know, he, he who wears, you shall not wear two fabrics of different fabrics on your body. 
well, they don't care about that one, you know. Um, and there's a whole lot of things in the Bible which the Bible says which they just ignore conveniently sure. because they don't, they break those rules. And yet they will cherry pick the things they have decided to follow and throw them at you. Right. That's fine. I have no problem with you believing whatever you want to believe, and I even have no problem with you informing me of things you, I don't know. Are you religious? I'm enough? atheist. I'm an atheist. Were you raised uh, no, in a no. religious tradition? No. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not. I, I, if religion helps a person, I think it's wonderful. Uh, I have nothing against it, but I do have a problem if you're if you're if you're if you're doing it stupidly or half-heartedly meaning if you want to sit down and quote the bible to me i'd be very interested to listen but don't just cherry pick what you think is applies to yeah, you yeah. let's talk about all of it and you can't throw half of it out and keep half of it you can't do it i don't think but so, so do you do you have any irrational beliefs that, that you still hold on to even after recognizing that they're irrational? What, do, what do you mean by irrational well uh, uh, do you believe in anything i I believe, let's put it this way. Yeah. Let's put it this way. I spoke about earlier on. This is totally in the line of what I've been saying. Remember when I said, if there's a piece of information which I'm going to allow into my psyche, into my brain, right. which could shake things up, I've got to, I, the way I do that to, um, to make sure that if I'm going to shake up my belief system, at least it's a valid piece of information, is I look at the, the credentials of the person who's giving it to me. Right. If I judge them to be competent, I will give some value or some weight to the information. What's been happening lately is I've been seeing some amazingly qualified people talking about things which are just not acceptable to talk about, which are, are looked down upon by society, laughed at, thought to be freakish. And when I see people, uh, the likes of which, you know, we're talking, you're talking if, um, for example, the UFO issue. Now, everyone chuckles and laughs at this because we've all been socialized to do it. And I did up until about 10 years ago. And still I started listening to people like the ex-admiral of the fleet in England, talking about when he worked with Churchill and all the UFOs and the way what Churchill said about UFOs. Um, Gordon Cooper, one of the most um, respected astronauts, American astronauts, who uh, says he has seen UFOs land in front of him in his while working for the uh, for the U, the U.S. Um, for NASA? For, no, for for the U.S. Army. Yeah. Um, and he's, I think it was for the Army, or maybe it was for NASA. Is it gone? No. And. Um, and then you see the ex-head of the FAA, ex-head yeah. of the FBI, ex-head of the CIA. Yeah. Well, when I see your FBI and CIA, I think it could be counterintelligence. But still, right. these are guys, enormously uh, powerful people. Right. Um, the guy who was, um, who was Nixon's uh, right-hand man in government coming out public saying the American government is the American people are ready to hear about this. Then you get all the NASA tapes, which have been downloaded by a guy called Martin Stubbs in, in British Columbia, Canada. He downloaded all the NASA transmissions. Even when NASA tried to scramble them, he unscrambled them and still got them. And he's released them all without any, without getting any money from it. And you see what's going on out there. You suddenly go, hold, a hold on a second. I resist believing in UFOs right. because, of the, because I think logically. But these people cannot be ignored. There's a guy called yeah. Stephen Greer in the States who got together 400 credible witnesses and he got the most credible, the 40 most credible, to declare, to do a press conference. I saw All that. asking to declare before Congress. Right. One of the guys is the ex-head of the FAA. Right. Another woman who worked for NASA and her job was airbrushing photos. Uh, another NASA scientist. It, these are very big, big, important people who are putting their reputation on the line. They wouldn't do it lightly. 
it makes me stop and go, hang on a second, this yeah. deserves a separate second look. Plus, these these recent events, like we were talking the other night in Chicago. At Chicago uh, O'Hare Airport. Airport. I mean, I read, you know, in CNN, all ma- mainstream media, the hmm. day after that happened, hundreds of people in the airport saying, yeah, I saw it. You know, there's no way that was some sort of press. Well, this is, a very, this is a very good example of cherry picking. You talk to people about UFOs and they'll go, dude, if it was real, we'd see it on the news. Right. And I go, you <laughs> have seen it on the news thousands of times. Right. This year, or this last year and this year, twice a Chinese airport has had to be shut down because there was a UFO hovering over the, the runways. And they've had to shut down the airport for an hour, two hours, and then start again. This was on, this was on all the news networks around the world. And a, a UFO sitting over Chicago O'Hare Airport for 20 minutes was seen by everyone. Right. And then shot straight up into the clouds, leaving a donut hole in the clouds, yeah. all of which was filmed, photographed, witnessed. Right. We still resist. Yeah. It comes out on all the news channels. We still resist. Because no one who we, who we, who we respect is giving us the information. We don't respect the news, the news anymore, the mainstream news, because they have lied to us in the past. So, yeah. but look at the people who are telling us this stuff. But I think it's more than, than just someone credible because, you know, there are lots of credible people now, for example, speaking out against um, the marijuana, you know, and have been. George Schultz, you know, former Secretary of State. You is know, credible? How is he credible? Well, he's credible because he's so far on the other side. Like they say, only Nixon could have opened up China. You know, a, a left leaning politician couldn't have, wouldn't have had the credibility to, to, to go to China and open up relations. And I, all I that. don't think we can ever call a politician credible. I'm sorry. No, we no. Can't. They, they, work, right. they work in a, in a job in which sure. it is essential to mislead and, and, and to mislead people. That's, that's uh, definitely true. What I mean is he's credible in the sense that he's not Dennis Kucinich. He's from the other side of the political spectrum, and even he's saying this war on drugs is fucking ridiculous and and has been saying. So all I'm saying is that it's not enough for some some big cheese to come out and say something. People will still resist it. Well, but but if it's a politician saying it, they should resist it. I'm saying talk to someone like um, Dr. Dr. Manel Guzman in the Copotencia de Madrid, Madrid, who's been studying for the last 12 years the effects of cannabis on cancer. Hmm. And he's found, without a shadow of a doubt, and published all his studies that the THC Delta 9, Delta 9 kills cancer cells. It induces, I think it's called poptosis, which is basically uh, makes the cancer cell die as a normal cell should. Mm. That's what cancer cells are. They've stopped dying. Right. Uh, he's induced human cancer in rats, and by injecting the oil straight into the tumor, he could cure these tumors in days, not weeks or months, days. Um... Now, then you, get, uh, then you get a guy in Canada, Rick Simpson. Uh, do go online and, and have a look at Rick Simpson. Do a search for his name. Uh, this man has, has been making marijuana oil and giving it to cancer patients with unbelievable levels of success. Radical, radical success. I mean, people on their last 48 hours in the hospital, the doctors are telling the family members to go and say your goodbyes, and they go in and they, they fill his mouth full of this oil or give him a big dose of oil. Three days later, he leaves the hospital. Three months later, he's feeling much better. And uh, six months later, he's not got the cancer anymore. And we're talking lung cancer, uh, skin cancers, almost any cancer you can think of. I start to find this stuff out, and I go, okay, this sounds like bullshit to me, total bullshit. But then I start to see interviews with very, very prominent science, uh, scientific um, scientists, very prominent doctors who have had some experience with this. If you ever get to a doctor and you say marijuana cures and they go, no, it doesn't, ask them, what are the components of marijuana? They have no idea. 
Have you ever seen a study on marijuana and illness? They haven't. And yet they will confidently tell you it right. has no healing ability. Well, you can't respect someone who, with no knowledge of the topic, has a firm opinion on it. Although, right. I, although I tend to do that very often. <laughs> <laughs> I've never let a lack of knowledge stop me from right. having a very strong well, opinion. That's why we don't trust you. But talk to people who know, who know something about it. Yeah. And they will tell you. Yeah. We've been lied to. Yeah. Absolute bullshit. Yeah. This has been a medicine for 5,000 years. They find marijuana in the, in the king's tombs in Egypt. Yeah. Their doctors use marijuana. Yeah. Queen Elizabeth I used marijuana for her menstrual cramps. Right. I mean, come on, people. William Shakespeare's pipe they finally analyzed what was in it. It yeah, was marijuana. Yeah, yeah. Non-stop. This has been a medicine for 5,000 years. And yeah. All of a sudden, because the American government, to help out their friends, the cotton growers, right. decide to make it illegal because hemp was a threat to the cotton industry, right. we suddenly believe them and go, oh, it's a very bad thing, marijuana. Yeah. Well, it, it was also quite convenient at the time in the 20s when it was made illegal, the early 30s, 30s yeah. Because what happened, as I'm sure you know this, the, the governmental mechanism in charge of enforcing prohibition, when they got rid of prohibition, all these guys thought that Anslinger, Harry Anslinger, thought he was going to lose his job, all these people who worked for him, so he had to find something else to go after, yeah, right? right? So they found marijuana, which was great because who used marijuana? Blacks and Mexicans. Great. We can throw them in jail. Just gives us another reason to throw them in jail. So yeah. there you go. Well, I know. So yeah. the, the hemp, the hemp, uh, using hemp to make clothing threatened the cotton industry. Sure. Yeah. And the cotton industry, you had some very big magnets who were involved in that and were very, very tied into the American government. Right. And they managed to get this hemp made illegal. Whereas in the First and Second World Wars, it was actually obligatory to grow right. hemp for right. the war effort. America, right. you could pay your taxes in America with hemp. The American Declaration of Independence is written on hemp paper. For God's yeah. sake. I remember I grew up in Pennsylvania. There was Hempfield Township was yeah. right next door to where we yeah. lived. Yeah. And this makes the best yeah. clothes. It makes uh. the best rope. It makes, I mean, pirates. Yeah. Pirates, the old, we used to think that pirates really was going after treasure. Most of the time when pirates were, were boarding other ships, they were after the sails and the ropes. Uh. That was what was so expensive. Of course, they were all made out of hemp. Right. Um, right. But that was what was expensive, and they were very expensive. And that's what they could steal off every ship. Right. Treasure was one in a million. But the ropes and the sails. Yeah. So it's starting to question things, I mean, it's fine to question, but you've got to look for corroboration. You've got to, and that corroboration has got to be, in my opinion, it's got to be from a credible source. Hmm. What's credible to you, that'll be different to every single person. That's subjective. Yeah. But I have very high levels of what's credible. And if I hear a doctor talking about marijuana, I want to know about that doctor. How long has he been practicing medicine? Where did he learn? When did he come upon these findings? Um, um, it, does he still have his license or has he been struck off? I want to know all this information. Yeah. Then I'll judge the credibility of the doctor and I'll give the, some weight to his information. But you start doing this and you start to see the world is not as we think it is. Yeah. I mean, there are UFOs buzzing all over the place and people are knocking us on the heads going, would you open your eyes? In the last five years, almost all world governments have opened up their, their top secret UFO files to the public. England, France, Spain, um, Brazil, Mexico, most governments in the last five or eight years, in the last five years really, have opened up their top secret files of UFOs to the public. They're all open. Why? So you can go online now and you can see um, fighter jets from any of these countries chasing UFOs, because all fighter jets have cameras which are constantly on to see what's going on, right. chasing UFOs at their maximum speed. The UFO's right in front of them and all of a sudden takes off, gone, and it's gone. These are films from fighter jets. 
dude, these are not fake films. These are not kids on YouTube making right. up fake films, although there are thousands of those. Yeah. Go and get the files from the government. So why have the governments opened up these files? So well, because we're in the process of disclosure. You I, think I mean, so? the, the, yeah, the speculation is that we are very different. Listen to the Vatican. The Vatican's scrambling like crazy. Mm. Two years ago, the Vatican was informed, uh, um, two or three years ago, was informed basically that this is coming out. The number of UFO sightings are just going through the roof lately. And now, all of a sudden, for the last two, three years, no one ridicules them. There's been a change in the media. The media used to laugh and ridicule them. Now there's no ridicule. Watch the media reports now and they go, well, that's interesting. Well, who knows? There's no more ridiculing. The Vatican has had to backpedal. They've had to come out with a public statement saying that although we say that God created man in his own image, we don't mean his physical image, we mean his spiritual image. The Vatican has sent envoys all over the world in different languages to do interviews and speak about this and they say, on television, Vatican represent, uh, representatives, we know there are UFOs, okay, we know this is real, so we have to talk about it, and how Christianity re relates to the finding of uh, beings from other planets. This is all happening right in front of our, right under our noses, but we cherry pick. Yeah. We don't want to see it, we switch the change the channel. But it's happening right under our noses. Uh, same with the marijuana. The marijuana is doing amazing things, and yet we're still fighting to get it decriminalized. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's insane. But well, uh, things are going our way finally, at least in the states, and you know. A and if you're, of states. Uh, one thing I want to say: if you're an Englishman out there and you're very proud of the way England won the Battle of Waterloo, uh, do, here we go. Do a little bit of investigation <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> because I think the English were the minority on the Battle of Waterloo. Most of the people fighting were from other countries who had come to help the English. Oh, really? And most of the power and the and the force from that battle came from other countries and so the British, the British hail it is a fabulous British victory and yet actually it wasn't the British who won it. <laughs> it reminds me of I was teaching in this uh, British uh, school here when I first got to Barcelona called Britannia School and I was the only token American on faculty mm -hmm. and because uh, I guess some kids came in they wanted an American accent student I mean a teacher with an American accent but it was this this school is like pure British man they were pictures of the queen everywhere and prince this and prince that and all this the flag and all this british crap and um at the end of the first gulf war the owner called all the teachers into a room and there was uh, some champagne and little cake and she said oh, i'd just like to you know celebrate the great british victory in the gulf <laughs> 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 and, and everyone looked at me and she said, oh, yes, and to the Yanks for their assistance. <laughs> God bless them, the Yanks. Uh, yeah, for their assistance. Yeah. All right. So let's wrap this up. Uh, we got places to go and people to meet and uh, tattoos to give. So uh, where can people uh, check out your work and uh, more of your stuff? Do you still do a blog? Uh, I had to stop the blog. Um, <laughs> it got a little. It got a little bit. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? My vocabulary <laughs> suffered after 20 years. Blogalicious? No, it got a little um, long-winded. No, contentious? I'm always Yeah, it got contentious. Contentious. Yeah, I was upsetting people. Oh. Not just writing back with rebuttals, but writing back with not death threats, but but something right in that line. You know. Uh, um, you were attracting trolls. I was attracting trouble, but I was throwing trouble out there, so yeah. I deserved it. But uh, basically, I mean, anyone who wants to take a look at our work, it's at voodoo tattoo.com, which is very easy. And, um, and my email, 
any word at voodoo-tattoo.com will get, will get to me. I'd love to hear from anyone who, um, who has more knowledge about this, who wants more knowledge about this, or just wants to chat and babble about any of this stupid stuff. All right. All right. Well, there you go. Well, thanks a lot, man. My pleasure, Chris. Thanks. Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.